break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 23rd of February, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the state of Arizona bringing back the gas chamber. We're going to be talking about the fraud that was welfare reform and the impoverished families that are suffering because of it. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with capitalists committing crimes. If you turn on the local news, pretty much always, at least at night, there is some story about a crime, usually something about an individual. In fact, the way crime is reported in the U.S., it creates a strong cultural attachment to the idea that crime is essentially a combination of petty thefts and brutal assaults and murders. It associates the concept primarily with the poor, and as a result, there's only limited pushback to the idea of our criminal legal system primarily being constructed and operating to house the poor and contain the social consequences of capitalist inequality on individuals. So it's a welcome sight to see that the Economic Policy Institute has started a new section of their website aimed at detailing enforcement actions against corporations, i.e. corporate crimes, which puts into context the fact that corporate behemoths commit all sorts of crimes and usually are punished with fines as opposed to the community-destroying mass incarceration approach applied to so many neighborhoods in the United States. Some of the actions highlighted by EPI so far in 2022 include that the, quote, Seattle Office of Labor Standards obtained a $2 million settlement with a Domino's franchisee that violated Fair Work Week minimum wage and overtime laws, end quote. This franchisor had 14 locations in Seattle and the Puget Sound area, and they just straight up did not pay the minimum wage to Seattle workers. They paid them below that, of course. They also refused to pay overtime when people worked over 40 hours a week. Seattle also has a law where companies have to give employees their schedules 14 days in advance, a fair scheduling law as it's known. This franchisee also just chose to blow right past that law. And in fact, some of these problems are probably bigger than just dominoes as Seattle also reached a settlement with another company for 250 grand, also for not paying workers the minimum wage. It's important to note, these are stolen wages. The boss might as well have just reached into the worker's pocket and taken out the money. In fact, it's worth noting multiple studies have detailed there is more wage theft in the United States than all other forms of theft combined. Yet, believe it or not, the jails and prisons rarely see any inmates there for wage theft. In Massachusetts, Family Dollar was forced to cough up $1.5 million to the state for thousands of meal break violations. State law requires if you work more than six hours, you must get at least one 30-minute meal break. Sounds more than reasonable, right? Well, Family Dollar decided for 620 employees in Massachusetts, they were not going to get that. Workers were denied breaks outright and forced to remain in the store during breaks, even when they were off the clock, to be in place to do work during the break. 
And even more notable, this was not random. It was a result of the fact that Family Dollar was deliberately understaffing the stores in order to make higher profits by working fewer workers harder, even in violation of the law. EPA also reported that, quote, the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, it's in California, by the way, obtained a guilty plea from a former police officer who started a security company, underpaid workers, evaded unemployment insurance taxes and workers' compensation obligations, and claimed that an injured worker wasn't an employee, even though he was in the company uniform driving the company car. Hmm. Ultimately, that's really just the tip of the tip of the iceberg, but it gives you a sense of the fact that rampant criminality pervades corporate America, but it rarely makes headlines. It certainly contributes almost nothing to mass incarceration in this country. And in fact, you could say the overall approach of the U.S. capitalist government to corporate crime is just a slap on the wrist. In 1996, when Bill Clinton and some Democrats teamed up with the entire Republican Party to launch so-called welfare reform, the promise was that Americans living in poverty would be freed from that disadvantage by the new, quote-unquote, tough policies designed to end the, quote, culture of dependency and poverty, end quote, that was allegedly the root of their problems. The centerpiece of the attack was on a program called Aid for Families and Dependent Children, cash assistance for those who needed it the most, essentially. A long-running racist attack aimed at black women and families eroded support for the program and set the stage for it to be axed. It was replaced with a program known as Temporary Aid for Needy Families, or TANF. Ultimately, the proof is in the pudding. And as the results show, the switchover has just meant more people in poverty go without help. TANF is, of course, temporary. The federal government pays the states to run the program, a small sum, and then the states can add on if they want. And some do. But in every single state, TANF does not actually give people enough to get them out of poverty. Let me just say that again. In every single state, TANF does not actually give people enough to get them out of poverty. And in only one state, New Hampshire, does TANF prevent people from falling into deep poverty. Put another way, as the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities relays, quote, while AFDC helped more than 2.9 million children out of deep poverty in 1995, TANF helped only 260,000 children out of deep poverty in 2017. And they go on to further note that, quote, in 1995, only three states had more families living in deep poverty than receiving AFDC. By 2020, most states had more families living in deep poverty than receiving TANF. In some, they note, quote, if TANF had the same reach in 2020 as its predecessor did in 1996, 2.3 million more families nationwide would have received cash assistance. Instead, in 2020, for every 100 families in poverty nationwide, only 21 received TANF cash assistance down from 68 families in 1996. One measure of the impact of TANF is the TANF to poverty ratio, which measures how many families out of every 100 living in poverty are receiving help. So if your score is 20, that means 20 out of every 100 families in the state living in poverty are being reached by TANF. As the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities further details, quote, an especially troubling trend is the number of states with TPRs of 10 or less. In 2006, only three states, Idaho, Louisiana, and Wyoming, had such low ratios. And in 1996, none did. In 2020, 14 states had TPRs of 10 or less. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. 
And three of these states have had especially large drops in their TPR since 2006. Indiana, gone down 29 points. Kansas, 23 points. And Arizona, 21 points. All have made significant policy or administrative changes that have made it harder for families to receive benefits. And as I mentioned before, the move from AFDC to TANF was racially charged. So you might not be surprised to hear that 41% of the nation's black children live in states with TPRs of 10 or less, compared to 34% of Latino children and 29% of white children. So there you have it. The richest country in the history of countries, letting millions of people live in poverty on purpose. The Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Phoenix. That's Phoenix, Arizona, suing the state of Arizona over its plan to revive the gas chamber for executions in the state using the same method the Nazis did during the Holocaust. The lawsuit argues that the state is violating the Constitution's Eighth Amendment bar on cruel and unusual punishment. As the Death Penalty Information Center notes, quote, in an action that provoked international outrage, Arizona refurbished its gas chamber after tests conducted in August 2020 revealed leaky seals and gaskets and spent more than $2,000 to acquire the ingredients to execute prisoners with cyanide gas. The gas known by the Nazis as Zyklon B was the signature method by which the Nazis carried out their genocide against European Jews, the Roma, and local populations at the Auschwitz-Birkenau, Magendek, and other concentration camps. At the time that this happened, the American Jewish Committee responded that, quote, Arizona's decision to employ Zyklon B gas as a means of execution defies belief. While there can be no doubt about its effectiveness, the Nazis use it to kill millions of innocent Jews. It is that very effectiveness as an instrument of genocide that makes it utterly inappropriate for use by a civilized state and a proceeding sanctioned by the state and its judiciary, end quote. Arizona, however, has done this before, prior to 1992, when the gas chamber was the preferred method. The Death Penalty Information Center summarizes that last execution thusly, quote, The witness room fell silent as a mist of gas rose much like steam in a shower, and Walter Legrand became enveloped in a cloud of cyanide vapor. He began coughing violently, three or four loud hacks, and made a gagging sound before falling forward, end quote. It took Legrand 18 minutes to die. The suit details that the gas chamber violates the Constitution for exactly those reasons. It is an unusually painful way to die. The suit quotes from a former California prison guard who had been imprisoned in Auschwitz, who refused to take part in gas chamber executions because, quote, I refused to act as a witness because, among other things, I knew that lethal gas is an excruciating, painful method of execution. He also noted witnessing a person being gassed to death would bring back horrendous memories of the hideous fate suffered by millions, which included my family, extended relatives, and friends. Even without witnessing the execution, being at San Quentin brought back all the memories, including the ghastly odors of the death camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau. It will be interesting to see how the state of Arizona responds to this. They made this move because Arizona, like a handful of states that are still trying to execute people, is struggling to find ways to do it that don't violate the Eighth Amendment. And increasingly lethal injections are hard to carry out because pharmaceutical companies don't allow their drugs to be used. And the untried drug cocktails often procured on the black market risk botched executions that can endanger the entire ability of anyone to execute anyone if there are no methods deemed not cruel and unusual. So to avoid that, Arizona brought back the gas chamber, which truly gives you a sense of the level of barbarity that reigns around the death penalty in the United States. That's the punch out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Oh.